morning. Let's turn to Psalm 120. We'll turn our attention again this week, as Damon mentioned, to the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Shir Hama'alot, a song of going ups, or likewise a psalm of degrees. They begin at Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them don't name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. And the common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during the three pilgrimage festivals. Pesach, or Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the giving of the law. And Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. Um, which celebrates God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These festivals were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to go up to Jerusalem and make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and later the temple built by Solomon. You can find the command in Deuteronomy 16.16. And you'll remember that Jerusalem stands on a hill, or rather a cluster of hills, surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. But Jerusalem stands apart because it is completely surrounded by deep valleys. So however one approaches the city, he will be going up or ascending. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And you will remember, some scholars have suggested there may have been a ritual singing of these songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount from the Valley of Hinnom, which lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The temple had several gates, but the one on this route seems to be a common approach to the city and to the temple. We often see in the New Testament Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives and going up to Jerusalem. This may have been the gate that he used. It was long ago sealed by stone, but there are still 15 ancient steps that lead up to the ancient wall. So we imagine together the Israelite pilgrims pausing there to sing their Shir Hama'alot. Since I only speak to you a few times a year, we make these our pilgrimage festivals, and we read the Psalms of Ascent aloud together. Hopefully, for some of us, these words are beginning to be familiar. Listen as we read them for the songs that we have studied before and try to remember their lessons. So if everyone would stand with me. I've passed out slips of paper to a number of you um, to read the Psalms. Keeping in mind that image of coming up from the valley of Hinnom and standing at the base of the hillside below the city gate with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress and preparing to ascend the temple. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne.
for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Listening once again to these words, we may notice once more that individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. And so we look to them to help us understand how we also may go about approaching God. First, we studied Psalm 124. This song reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezers of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123. Here we saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, a right perspective toward his nature and position in this situation, understanding that he, who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition of our need for mercy. We immersed ourselves in Psalm 130. Thus we learned to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood his consistent nature, that he is just and that we are guilty and that he offers us redemption for, by his own power and through his own work. We examined Psalm 125. We saw that the people of God come to God with unshaken trust, that God holds the patent on truth and righteousness and it has no need of innovation, that such a stance will not be popular and certainly won't be mainstream, that the world will not love us for trusting God and standing immovable in the face of wickedness. Indeed, Jesus himself warned us that we would be hated if we followed him. And last time we cuddled up with Psalm 131. It showed us that we must come to God with submitted selves, having received and accepted his discipline like a weaned child, and like that child having matured beyond the petty demands of our own wants and needs, but having exerted our wills upon both body and spirit to quiet ourselves and move into a relationship with him of love and trust and adoration. Today I'd like us to look together at Psalm 128. And we will see that we also must come to God walking in his ways. As usual, I'll read from the Hebrew English Bible. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be a fruitful vine in the heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. 
The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. As always, I'll begin by discussing the poetry of the psalm. These songs, you will remember, arise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew, and that uh, this is part of what sets psalms apart from the other kinds of scripture. Um, you also may recall that poetry works with a different set of tools than we see in Western poetry. We usually rely on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents. But Hebrew deals mainly in metaphor, simile, and various kinds of repetition, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds. Key words play a large part, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery. Comparison and contrast play their parts as well. The most important thing to look for when you're reading Hebrew poetry is the interaction. The Hebrew language doesn't have that strict linear subject-verb-object form that we see in English. Words and phrases interplay with each other. There's a lot of allusions. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us is the stanza. If we look at our poem... Here we can pretty quickly break it into two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 and 6. A look at verses 1 through 4 will show us why. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the heart of your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. So verses 1 and 4 have a primary phrase in common, who fears the Lord. This is what I think of as a sandwich psalm. I don't think that's what the Hebrew scholars call it, but I think it'll do for us. So a sandwich psalm has a repetition, who fears the Lord, divided by an elucidation or expansion of the idea. So our two declarations about those who fear the Lord make up the bread of the sandwich and give us the main thought or topic of the poem. We're going to learn something about those who fear the Lord, and then between them, we'll find further detail. Now, we will recall from our earlier studies that when we see the word Lord in capital letters, this indicates the name of God. Uh, The Jews would say Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, it's called, uh, which we pronounce Yahweh, but whose original pronunciation is lost because generations of Jewish people refuse to pronounce it lest they take the name of God in vain. This is the personal designation of God in his selfness, the creator and originator of all things, the beginning, the Lord himself, his very name. We have also seen this word fear before in Psalm 130, verse 4, you will recall, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It is the word for reverent awe, and it is one of the strongest and most primary reactions that we ought to have when encountering Almighty God. Those who fear the Lord is also, however, a common designation for what we think of as believers, especially in the Old Testament, when the religion of Judaism was kind of mixed up with the nationality and family loyalty. We often find people's faith status summarized by this phrase, a good king feared the Lord. His son perhaps did not fear the Lord. So this song is going to be about believers, and specifically from verse 1, 
believers who walk in his ways. For those familiar with Psalms and Proverbs, this is a well-known phrase and fairly self-explanatory. To walk in his ways is to align your path with his. In essence, to do as he would do. To make your way of being to be his way of being. So we were speaking of people who both fear God and follow him. In that context, then we look to the middle of our sandwich to find the details. What will happen to these God-fearers and way walkers. In this case, the sandwich is a metaphor sandwich and pretty well stacked. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. The images are pretty clear. The fruitful vine and olive plants are symbols of abundance. But the first time I read this this psalm, and indeed the first many times that I read it, it made me quite uncomfortable. In fact, I specifically did not choose it for earlier messages because I couldn't come to grips with what it seemed to be saying. I read, You shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the heart of your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. And I understood the message to be, Follow God and you will be happy because he will give you a marriage and children. But that doesn't seem right. Uh, What if you don't have a wife and kids? What if you don't want them? What if you want them and can't get them? What if you get them but lose them? Or if they reject you? What if they die? What about infertility? What about single people? Obviously not every faithful believer is married with kids around the table. So what's the message? I was missing something. And the thing that I was missing was verse 2. The crux, in my opinion, of the whole stanza. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. And specifically the first half of the verse, when you eat the labor of your hands. Or in some translations, you shall eat the labor of your hands. The word labor can be translated as toil or also as produce, as in that which you produce. This may seem simple, but I believe it touches on a deep truth about how God interacts with humanity. He lets us eat the labor of our hands. Many of you know that we have a vegetable garden at home. Judging from Instagram and a peek around the front of the church, uh, we're not the only ones. So this year we have a pretty good crop of tomatoes coming and four varieties. The cucumbers are growing like crazy. The first bell peppers are getting big. The squash and cantaloupe are looking promising. And we have more basil and Thai basil than we really know what to do with. I even have a few more things sprouting in trays inside the house because I'm crazy. A few days ago, I harvested our first little cucumber, just barely big enough to eat. The minute I showed it to Stacy, she couldn't help it. She took a big bite. We ate it right there on the spot. It was amazing. The best cucumber I've ever had. But this was not our first year planting a garden. Not exactly. Last year, we planted four things in the vegetable garden a tomato plant, a basil plant, an oregano plant, and a zucchini. By midsummer, the oregano was dead. We accidentally let the basil flower and go to seed. The tomato had turned a weird pale green and produced these three little yellow inedible fruits. And the zucchini was trying to take over the world. We called it Zucchini Bonaparte. It stood almost as tall as Stacy and produced these massive fruits. It seemed invincible. 
But it turned out we were watering it wrong, so suddenly it caught a fungus and died. So what was the difference between our results last year and God willing the promise of our garden this year? The short answer is us, the labor of our hands. Last year we thought about the garden for about six minutes before we planted it. And it caught our attention every two or three days after that. It's not that we didn't care, we liked the garden. We certainly got a lot of zucchini out of it for a while. But we didn't know very much about how to grow vegetables. And among the most important things that we didn't know were, one, that each kind of vegetable requires a different kind of attention, and two, that they require that attention basically on a daily basis. To grow good vegetables, you need to look at them and think about them for at least a few minutes just about every day. It says it on all the websites. If you will do that, then when you eat the labor of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. This is what I was missing in Psalm 128, the key element of the poem. God allows us to eat the labor of our hands. My first interpretation of the poem, follow God, get girl, have kids, was essentially transactional. And here, I think, is an error that invades the worldview of many people, both believers and unbelievers. Many, I think, seem to treat the universe and its systems as a kind of neutral playing field, and they see themselves and God as players on that field. Only God, if he exists, is a massively powerful player who must be appeased or bartered with, avoided or enlisted to our help. So dealing with God is a transaction. We do what he wants. We get what we want. Upset him, get crushed. Stay out of his way. No harm, no foul. This is an essentially superstitious view of the Almighty. It can be traced to the heart of Greek deities, pagan sacrifices, and the modern dark doctrine that if I'm not hurting anyone else, then what I'm doing can't be wrong. And we see it inside the church too. God, get me through this and I'll... God, heal my child, and I will. But God is not a player on this field. He is the maker of the playing field, the players and the rules of the game itself. This whole thing is his idea. The Lord, Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, the creator, the beginning, cannot be bargained with, evaded, manipulated, or ignored. Why? Because of the deep implications of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. He created the universe with all its laws and processes. He created the human creature in all of its complexity. And he decided how he would react and interact with both. And one of the properties that he imbued into this intricately wrought system is the unavoidable fact that you shall eat the labor of your hands. You will reap what you sow. God has given us almost unlimited choices. He allows us to love or to kill, to create or to destroy, to seek noble things or base things, to steal or to give, to be Hitler or the army private who throws himself on a grenade to save his three friends. All avenues are open to us. There is only one caveat. Whether we are walking in his ways or fighting and hating him, or anything in between, God allows us to reap the results of our choices. This is not passivity. This is not vindictiveness. Rather, this is freedom. This is grace, common grace, as the theologians call it. The opportunity to make choices that matter and affect our lives and the lives of others, up to and including the choice to be one of those 
who fear God, and beyond that, to also walk in his ways. While I've been ill recently, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and TED Talks. So I came across Simon Sinek. Uh, Some of you might have heard of him. He has the third most watched TED Talk of all time. Like 32 million views or something. So Sinek, despite the unfortunate sound of his name, is a professional secular optimist. And his message might best be described as moral humanism. His talks focus on convincing business people to to do and be good to each other and to act morally in business because it's in their own best interests and because it will make them feel good. He comes at this primarily from the angles of biology and anthropology. In his second talk, Why Leaders Eat Last, for example, he suggests that humans naturally give social status to people of greater ability, but this comes with a social contract. To quote him, the cost of leadership is self-interest. So when danger comes, what you have to do is put yourself at risk to look out for others. That is the anthropological definition of leadership. Not only that, he says, it's the only effective way to lead because people will gladly follow someone they believe will sacrifice for them. Which sounds a lot like the servant leadership that we find in the scriptures. When discussing oxytocin, the chemical associated with love and feelings of closeness and kinship, Sinek points out that one of the ways to produce this chemical is through acts of generosity, particularly sacrificing time and energy while asking nothing in return. So being generous feels good. Also receiving generosity feels good. And even seeing someone else do something generous feels good. All apparently are stimulators of oxytocin. And one of the side effects of oxytocin, in fact, is that feel is in fact feelings of generosity. The more you do, Cynic says, the more you want to do. It also inhibits addiction, it boosts the immune system, he says, it makes you healthier. It's why happy people live longer, it's why couples live longer. It's good for us. It increases our ability to solve problems. It increases our creativity. It's really good for us and it's not addictive. It just feels great, he says. So basically, generosity, love, self-sacrifice, etc., are actually built into our biology. Now, I'm not a biologist, and I can't vouch for all of Sinek's claims on the scientific front, but I'm sure we can agree that often doing good things feels good. I believe what Sinek is describing without realizing it is the principle that God has designed us in the universe in such a way that choices, both evil and good, often create their own consequences. And our psalmist is giving us examples of the positive side. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his way. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the heart of your house. Your children like olive plants are all around your table. Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. If you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, then when you eat the labor of your hands, the result will be happiness. The wife and children here are not blessings received in payment for service. Rather, they are examples of how it will be well with you. The spouse, the vine, the children, the plants, all of them require hard work and careful attention, and succeeding at that hard work and attention will lead to a life of happiness and well-being. But we will ultimately find that success only to the extent that we are willing to walk in the ways of the Lord. When you follow the handbook, as it were, 
the machine works better. Which brings us to stanza two. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So what does that have to do with stanza one? The key is in the word bless. In the English translation, the word appears three times. In verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. In verse 4, behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. That's our sandwich. And in verse 5, the Lord bless you out of Zion. But in Hebrew, there are two different words in play. The word blessed in verse 1 is actually the same as the word happy translated in verse 2. It's related to straightness and well-being. It's the same word that we saw in Psalm 1, which Damon preached on a while back. Another psalm with a strong agricultural metaphor. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But in verse 4, the bottom piece of bread in our metaphor sandwich, the word is different. When the psalmist sings, Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord, echoing verse 1, he uses a word that is related to kneeling, as one might kneel to receive a blessing from a king. It is a word that speaks of prosperity from the Lord, of good things given, of endeavors blessed. And the same word appears in verse 5 as an actual invocation of God's active blessing. The Lord bless you out of Zion. This is not in opposition to the idea of eating the labors of your hands, but rather in addition to it. It is what Damon would call a both-and situation. God's blessing is not transactional, and yet God is not passive either. There is no clockmaker God represented in the scripture. God is the first actor, and he also continues to participate with us. He honors and prospers our efforts and walks with us through both failure and triumph. And we know from experience that we may reap that though we may reap the results of our own choices, we do not only reap those results. Sometimes we reap the choices of others. That's also part of the system, and some things are by nature beyond our individual or even our collective control. Some things are bigger than us. Things like the good of Jerusalem, or the good of America, for that matter. Or the lengths of our lives. Or whether we have grandchildren or the peace of Israel. The psalmist knew it. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And so we must be both doers and trusters. We must set our wills to hold the Lord in reverent awe, we must set our bodies and our minds to make his ways our ways, and we must look to him for the rest, trusting that he will honor our efforts and handle all the myriad things that fall beyond our comparatively tiny ability to control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom that you give us and also the guidance. Help us to take seriously the commands and admonitions that you have given us in your word. To see them not as impositions, but as instructions for living our lives as you designed and intended them to be. Help us to walk in your ways, not to get something from you, but rather that trusting that yours are, in fact, the best ways to walk. And when we come hard against our own limitations, teach us to trust your love 
and your blessing for all those things we have no hope of controlling. Amen.